Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Who hasn't seen children squabbling, negotiating, crying mine over toys? But how different are adults? We go to court over who owns what, typically use familiar words if we use our words, and sometimes use more violent means to assert our claims. The stakes are arguably higher in contests over life-saving things like uh, drugs or water rights or legroom on airplanes. Michael Heller, the Lawrence A. Wine Professor of Real Estate Law at Columbia, and James Salzman, the Donald Bren Distinguished Professor of Environmental Law at UCLA, examine our notions of ownership and, and how they're evolving in a new book called Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. It's published by Doubleday, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Michael Heller to our show now. Welcome. It's great to be here with you, Leonard. You write, quote, all property conflicts exist as competing stories. Stories? It really is just stories. And this is, you know, I, I realized this when I was in the playground with my kids some years ago and they were fighting over a little red shovel. And my, my daughter said, it's mine. I'm holding on to it. And my son said, no, 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 it's mine. I had it first. And what I realized is they weren't just saying mine and mine. They were actually telling two really powerful stories about who gets what. My daughter was saying, um, you know, I had it first, first in time. And my son was saying, I'm holding it, possession. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Turns out that first and possession are two of only six simple stories that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. So our, our claims of, of ownership follow a few predictable patterns? And many fewer than you might guess, right? So so, so in that story in the playground, it was first in possession. Uh, but if you go onto an airplane and you're worried about like who gets that wedge of space on the airplane, or you're going online and trying to figure out who owns uh, the places, uh, the information about where you click around, all of those different conflicts just use the same tiny handful of very, very simple stories, stories we all learn as kids. And to illustrate the point about competing stories, you discuss the case of the knee defender. What's the knee defender? This is a wild experience. I don't know if, you, if you've had this experience, Leonard, but I certainly have. I, I still fly, I fly coach all the time. And I get on the plane and I take out my laptop and I try to get to work. And invariably someone in front of me leans their seat back, uh, like right into my lap. Mm. Um, and they, and you know, I, 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 try to, I try to get along. We all try to get along. Um, but it turns out that that, uh, that the little conflict is a really powerful window into how ownership works. So you asked about the knee defender. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, you could buy on the internet this little plastic clamp called a knee defender. It's about $21. Um, and if you stuck it on the tray table, it would keep the seat in front of you from leaning back. So there was a businessman, a guy named James Beach, who was a, a big guy, a frequent traveler. He was on a flight from Newark to Denver, and he took out his knee defenders and he put them on the seat and they, they, they really worked. They really stopped the person in front from leaning into him. Uh, the woman in front got super mad. Uh, she jammed her seat back, which threw his laptop into, into James's lap. He pushed the seat back up. She threw her water at him. Uh, the mm. pilot actually grounded the plane. They turned, turned, turned around and landed in Chicago. Um, so we don't know how it would have escalated, but that was just one small example of what's actually become a relatively common, which is these air rage fights over who gets to control that reclining wedge of space. And it turns out to be the exact same two stories, same stories uh, that kids are using on the playground. You also write that, quote, 
ownership is always a choice among competing narratives backed up by the state's coercive power. Does the state exercise coercive power even when the law isn't explicit about ownership? Well, that's that's right. That's right, Leonard. So um, most actual ownership conflicts that you go through, and you go through hundreds of ownership conflicts every day, all day long, really almost every minute, you're struggling with somebody over something. Uh, most of those conflicts take place outside the law. So to go back to the airplane seat example, the law doesn't say um, uh, whether you can lean back or not. What people are relying there is not on law, but just on these simple notions about who should get what. So the person in front, the woman in front who slammed her seat back, um, she was saying that little button on the airplane seat, that button, uh, I control that button, and that button controls the wedge of space. The wedge of space is attached to my seat, and therefore it's mine. Attachment is one of the six simple stories. It's actually the most important ownership stories that your listeners probably haven't heard of. Um, it's what it's what makes your home your castle. Um, and the guy, the guy behind, James Beach, he was saying, I had the space first. I possessed it. So he was using first and possession. She was using attachment. Um, and that's actually three of our six stories right there of, that everyone uses to claim everything in the world. And what this, but the two passengers didn't realize that there is that actually it's the airline, not the government and not them, that's setting up this conflict. The airline keeps squeezing us closer and closer together. Each inch they save on board basically lets them sell six more seats on that flight you know, every and every flight. Um, so what the airlines do is they squeeze us together. It makes that wedge of space more valuable. And by being ambiguous about whether the person in front or back controls it, uh, what the airlines are doing is selling that same space twice, once for you, know, you to recline, and again, uh, for me, for my knees and laptop. And they count on us uh, relying on those simple stories. They count on us trying to work it out by being polite uh, rather than getting mad at the real um, cause of the problem, which is the airlines double selling that space. The airlines there are using one of the most powerful strategies of ownership, a strategy called strategic ambiguity that really savvy businesses use uh, to get you to do what they want. So the state doesn't get involved in this? Not all. in this one. The FAA has said uh, how airline seats are designed is really up to the airlines. Um, so, and that's often true. Air, ownership turns out to be ambiguous much more often than people realize. One of my most challenging uh, problems as a professor, as a law professor, is persuading my law students that law really is overrated. Uh, <laughs> law, you know, it turns out that law is important much less often than people think it is. 99.99% of the ownership conflicts we all have every day happen outside of the law. Is that why you're title is, uh, it says uh, that ownership, there are rules of ownership that are hidden. Exactly right. So people don't realize that there are just these very small handful of rules, like first and possession and attachment, um, and a handful of strategies for how companies and governments uh, sort of manage our relationship to them. So what's hidden there is that um, when you say mine and I say mine, what's usually going on is that we're actually using different ones of those sim simple stories. And each of them feels right and natural to us. And, and both of us can be right. And both of us can't be right. So what happens, you know, most of the time the law doesn't solve it. Uh, most of the time we just try to sort it out by being like good people, by trying to work things out one-on-one uh, -on -one, like the people do on the airline. What is, uh, does a rule, whether it's in law or not, have to be publicized to be effective? 
Well, I don't think so. You know, again, most of the time, like when when you line up um, to get a latte, no one's told you how to get in line. Or when you go to Disney World and line up to go on Splash Mountain, uh, no one tells you how to get in line. But that's something that kids learn from a very early age, uh, basically how first in time works. Um, or how labor works, a fourth story. It's mine because I worked for it. Uh, people have a pretty good sense of how ownership works without any knowledge of what the law is. You know, I don't know if you've lost or found a wallet or a cell phone in a taxi. I certainly have had that happen many times. You know, I teach this stuff and I don't actually know what the law is in New York for how you dispose of a cell phone that you find. But almost always people try to get it back to the owners. People do the right thing even when they don't know what the law is. And it gets complicated on, on things like what we've seen recently, mask wearing uh, in stores and restaurants and the like. Absolutely. So what's changed today is we have the same story. We have the story about possession. I possess the space around me. Um, but that personal space has shifted with the pandemic from being you know, inches to being uh, several feet and maybe six feet. So what happens when somebody, when you go to the beach and put down your towel? And someone puts their towel closer than six feet or someone does that in the park. Whose space is that? Uh, no one knows. It's absolutely up for grabs. And that's another instance where we solve that dispute uh, mostly by sort of trying to accommodate each other rather than by relying on law. And sometimes it can be friendly and sometimes it can absolutely. be rather antagonistic. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the one of the surprising features about how ownership really works is that it depends so much on the community that you are a part of and the sort of culture and norms of people um, for how they resolve these conflicts. So for example, um, when people save seats, right? People save seats everywhere. They save seats in church. They save seats at the gym um, or at the, for a parade. Uh, and there's really different cultures around or on an airplane. There's really a movie theater. There's really different cultures for pe how people sort of, uh, to what extent they're going to respect, for example, a jacket um, over the seat. Um, well, is it okay to save one seat in a movie theater? How about a whole row? How about one seat on a Southwest flight? How about a whole row? There's or an the unspoken subway. language. Sorry? Or on the bu a bus or the subway. Or so the are we really subway. claiming ownership when we reserve a seat for a friend? Well, we are. You know, we're, we're not claiming it as a matter of law, but in practice, that's how law actually operates, is when you put your bag down on the seat next to you and you're saying this seat is saved. Um, and people respect that. People know they, they, they move on to the next, uh, to the, you know, they go further back in the bus or further back in the train. Um, and they, that's, those signals of possession are something that we learn. Those signals actually go back to our animal territoriality. They actually are pre-human. Uh, you see birds chirping to, to protect territory. When, when the birds are chirping, they're not saying, they're not trying to be cute. They're basically saying, back off, buddy. Uh, this is my territory. And we do the same thing. Uh, with our jackets and with our pillows on the church pew. Or is the sense of possession true for uh, pretty much all species ab above the insect level? Um, I don't know about insects. I'd, be, I'd love to find out. But for all the animals that we know about, there is, yeah. um, there is some sense of territoriality. Um, so you see bears uh, marking trees. You see uh, mm -hmm. Uh, you see scat, you see, um, uh, you see a whole range dog of dog barks at everybody dog who comes barks, by. Absolutely. So that territoriality then is, you know, when you see kids, little kids in the playground, which we started talking about, um, you know, the first words are mama and papa and no comes pretty early. But one of the very first words that kids learn is mine. 
Um, and, and this is true in every culture, everywhere in the world. Um, so did we, did, sense, did we carry that into adulthood? The, the Absolutely. The, those childhood ideas about ownership? Yeah, those, they feel so natural. We, the, the, the phrases that we use, first come, first served, possession is nine-tenths of the law. You reap what you sow. My home is my castle. That's how we understand ownership in the world around us. We sort of, we rely on these very simple sayings to get us through our day without bumping into you know, each other too much. Uh, we, we said many animals are territorial. I suddenly uh, thought about the movie Finding Nemo, where seagulls are always crying, mine, mine, mine. Isn't that a great scene? It's a great yeah. scene. And it's actually true to what seagulls do. They're, um, when they're calling like that, when they're calling, uh, what they are often doing is marking uh, not just territory, but also locations of food. Um, so the Finding Nemo penguins actually is a recent Sesame Street um, with uh, Elmo uh, and, and his friends uh, claiming mine, mine, mine. Uh, this is a very, very, uh, it's a very powerful topic that gets us through all day long. And what, here's what's so surprising is um, that those very simple instincts about possession, for example, uh, when you move into the online world today, uh, companies have figured out how to re-engineer those very simple stories. This is another one of the hidden features of ownership uh, to basically evoke your um, primitive, your childish feelings about ownership, but they actually give you something different. So when you go on to a, a, a tech retailer and you see that little shopping cart online and you see the buy now button, all of that is designed to basically um, bring up in you your feeling of possession. But it turns out that when you click buy now online, you actually buy something very different and much less from what you think that you own. Uh, there's a real gap online today between what you feel like you own and what you actually own. And what it means is that the online retailers are getting an extra premium on every download that you make because you're still in this very physical world, the world of the child, where it's mine because I'm holding on to it. But that doesn't really translate so well online. Uh, you're listening to uh, Michael Heller, who is co-author with James Saltzman of Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. It's published by Doubleday. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, readers will probably find many of the cases in your book familiar are there any that you find particularly interesting, amusing, or, or troubling? Like uh, you discuss a life or death example involving a possible treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Well, there are so many stories in the book that are both troubling or infuriating. My, my co-author and I um, had a really tough audition process for the book. A story had to be engaging, it had to be counterintuitive, and it had to be infuriating or at least two out of the three in order to make it into the book. So every story in the book is something that every one of us will relate to. So one of the stories that you're asking about there has to do with an ownership phenomenon that I actually discovered um, about 20 years ago. Uh, Leonard, you don't remember this, but I was actually on your show um, some years ago uh, in 2000 with my last- uh, It was a memorable book. experience. Well, it was for me. Um, I <laughs> certainly was, a, it was a, it's a big deal for me. I, I love being your guest. Um, where I talked about what, we, what I call ownership gridlock, which is a phenomenon in which too many owners of something uh, mean that the resource gets uh, dis wasted by being underused. So let me, let me be concrete. So it used to be in this country that scientists, when they discovered really basic science um, uh, innovations, they would publish them freely. They would, get, um, they would publish them in academic journals. 
and they would get tenure or they would get reputation by their discoveries. But about 30 years ago in this country, we switched uh, to a new model for ownership where, where scientists, university scientists could get patents uh, on, their dis- on their discoveries. Uh, and that had a, a very positive effect in that it led to a lot of money creating the so-called biotech revolution. Tons more patents on basic science. But then if you're an actual drug maker or a Merck or a Pfizer that wants to put a drug in a bottle, an actual pill that saves lives, instead of being able to get all the basic information you need from freely from university um, studies, uh, suddenly you're facing a wall of hundreds of patents. And each of those patent holders can keep you out of uh, the research that you need to do. So the paradoxical effect of the biotech revolution was we had many, many more patents, much more ownership, but we had less drug discovery, fewer, fewer drugs that actually save people's lives. So the head of one of these big pharma companies told me he had a very promising uh, treatment for Alzheimer's, but he couldn't bring it to market because of, uh, because of what's sometimes called a patent thicket. Too many owners meaning leading to too little ability to actually move forward with research. He actually shelved uh, the drug. And what the, what the drug companies typically do now is they pursue drugs where they already have uh, the relevant patent portfolios. They do extensions of existing drugs, but it's become much, much harder to invent new classes of drugs because of what I called ownership gridlock. So that Alzheimer's drug has never been released? Never released. And, the, and what happens is nobody knows to complain about these drugs that, that don't happen Especially because you don't Alzheimer's. see them. You don't because you don't well, you don't because you don't see them. You don't you don't you don't know you don't know who to talk to uh, for discoveries that don't get made because we have too much ownership uh, blocking the creation of a new drug. And then there were other issues. Uh, is it Mylon Pharmaceuticals? Uh, they acquired the rights of the EpiPen in 2007. 24 years after it first went on the market, and they promptly raised the price by a factor of four to $600, uh, which was beyond uh, uh, the ability for many people to pay. Is that a problem with the narrative about ownership or, or with Absol- U.S. law? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is, it's, it's outrageous when that happens. Um, the background rule in America, the basic idea we have about ownership for, for intellectual, for ideas, not for apples, but for like apple recipes for ideas, is that it should be freely copied. Because if I you know, use an apple recipe and you use an apple recipe, every listener today can also use that same recipe and it doesn't have any less, it's not any less useful. If I use the apple, you can't use the apple. So for real stuff, it makes sense to have prices and markets and ownership, but for intellectual property, uh, from the standpoint of consumers, we're better off with no intellectual property. So copyright and patents, that body of law, the idea of it is to give as little protection as possible to inventors and artists, as little as possible in order to get them to innovate or um, to create, but no more than that. So the EpiPen story is a very good example. Uh, There was enough motivation uh, with fairly limited patent rights uh, but having, you know, quadrupling the price wasn't wasn't necessarily part of what uh, we needed to do in order to have the EpiPen uh, drug um, discovered in the first place. The goal is to have as little property rights as possible, consistent with the drug being invented in the first instance. So is the EpiPen still six hundred dollars? Now you've skated right beyond my knowledge. I don't know. Okay. At some at some point, um, the uh, patent terms only last for twenty years. Uh, so, um, uh, sometimes the new delivery mechanism for, for like something like an EpiPen that will get a new patent. 
Um, but the underlying drug, uh, basically the patent runs out after, after a limited period of time. And then, and then that's the point is that we, we give you monopoly protection for a while, but eventually we, the public, we, the people uh, get, get the rights to that underlying invention. One case that surprised me involves the speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You write that his legacy became a brand. Yeah. So is there know, a company, King Incorporated? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So when Dr. King uh, wrote his speeches, he was writing them to basically create a more racially fair America. He had a very clear vision of what his intention was in writing those speeches. But as an author, he also gets a copyright. Uh, and those copyrights turned out to be the most valuable part of his estate um, after he was murdered uh, in the late 60s. Uh, and his family, his children and grandchildren, have uh, their lives have been uh, paid for in substantial measure by uh, King, King Inc., which um, manages the King legacy, manages his copyrights. Uh, now, it manages it in ways that many of the civil rights supporters of Dr. King don't really agree with. They, for example, licensed uh, his speeches to advertise uh, uh, pickup trucks uh, when Dr. King actually himself was very much against the, uh, uh, the, the effect of um, uh, car maker advertising on the American public. So the King family, the King Inc., has used his speeches in ways that Dr. King likely would have been absolutely appalled by. Um, but that's one of the artifacts of having a copyright system. We, we talked about patents, this is copyrights. Copyright system that gives way too much protection after somebody's death. Again, well, point I'm sure he'd be horrified that King oh. Corp Inc. changed a charge for the use of, of Dr. King's words on the King Memorial in Isn't Washington, D.C. So, so did incredible? Yeah. Did Ava DuVernay have to ask for permission to use his speeches in her film, Selma? Right. So Selma is a, such a powerful film. And the portrayal of Dr. King there is one of the most sort of impressive portrayals that you've anybody really has experienced. It gives you a feeling for what it's like, what it would have been like to be in his presence. What's, but if you listen carefully to the speeches, if you listen carefully to the sort of the big speech on, you know, the big speech on, on the Capitol, uh, he's not, the, the actor there is not using any of Dr. King's actual words. The King estate wouldn't license uh, the, um, the, his speeches to um, Ava DuVernay, to the director. Um, they had already licensed uh, the words to Steven Spielberg. He was going to make a competing movie. Mm. So she had to have um, her screenwriters actually draft speeches that sounded like King, but didn't actually use any of his words. The extent of control in this country over creative expression after someone is dead is outrageous. It goes way, way, way too long. And it's actually largely uh, the, the, um, the, uh, happened because of uh, because of Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is the real culprit in this story. In what way? Well, it turned out that you know uh, Walt Disney. Uh, he his his big hit character uh, was um, Lucky was um, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit in the early twenties. He lost it in a business dispute. He then took a train ride back to L.A. and came up with you know, what eventually became his legacy, which was Mortimer Mouse, which eventually became Mickey Mouse. And he loved Mickey Mouse and he defended Mickey Mouse to the death. Um, but after he passed away, the Disney company since then has used a really uh, extremely effective lobbying on Capitol Hill to uh, essentially buy uh, two 20-year uh, extensions of the copyright term for all intellectual property in America, for all copyrights in America. So Mickey Mouse is still under copyright almost 100 years 
after Walt Disney created him in the early 1920s. And what that means is almost all of American culture from the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s, this radio show, if you were broadcasting back then, uh, wouldn't be available to anybody in the future because it would all be locked up under copyright um, for decades, for, four, for 40 years more, because Disney bought 40 years of extra protection uh, to, for Mickey Mouse. What Disney yeah, sure. did is they, protect, they protected itself, but they basically destroyed a lot of our access to, to the great flowering of American culture. WMYC told me that if I wanted to write a book, I would have to get permission to quote from radio shows that I did. Isn't that incredible? How's that possible? But that's well, the you have to call them. Was. They were very mean spirited. I'm not going to go into that. But anyway, yeah. uh, uh, I guess it's too late for Abraham Lincoln's descendants to uh, register yeah. copyright. No, so so it, it's, it's lifetime plus 90 years. Plus, so basically it's, it's um, plus 70 years. So basically what it means is um, things from the 1920s are now just now going into the public domain. Uh, so actually this year was the, the Great Gatsby went into the public domain. Mm -hmm. um, so from Abraham Lincoln's time, all of that, it, it turns out actually there's much more American culture from the eight, late 1800s, from the, the, the era of Lincoln and after, than there is from the 1920s to the 1950s, uh, because the stuff from before 1920 is available in the public domain and Google put every single piece of it up online for free. But everything from 1920 to 1960 is still locked away, except for the tiny one or 2% of um, of films or radio shows or books or plays or poetry that still happens to be in print. You write, quote, zero ownership is the baseline rule in American law. What's zero ownership? For intellectual property, the basic goal for intellectual property is to have as little ownership as possible because the, we, the real value comes from um, assembling different pieces, different guitar riffs into a new song, uh, different uh, phrases and tropes and characters into new dramas. Uh, the real value comes from copying and cum accumulating uh, culture. Culture is basically interdependence. So um, the reason that the constitution uh, actually says Congress is in charge of copyright law and patent law is that the charge to Congress and, um, is to have as limited protection as possible in order to have as much copying as possible, consistent with giving and motivating inventors and creators to wake up and produce some culture. That's why we have limited terms. A car owner might spend an hour or more shoveling out a, a parking spot. Homesteaders built and developed land in the American West. Do claims of ownership often turn on claims about how we've acquired a thing or how we've used it? Absolutely. So the, the stories that you're raising, you know, go both from the, from today in Boston or Chicago, all the way back to the founding of America. So today in Boston or Chicago, if you dig out your car uh, after a snowstorm, you'll, you put a chair in the street or, or a cone, or sometimes even a box of Fruit Loops, but usually a chair. And that parking chair holds your space. And what it means is at the end of the day, when you come back, your space is still, still there. And everyone in Boston and South Boston in particular in Chicago, they know this system. It's outside of the law. It's not legal to do this, but the police won't enforce, won't protect you if you park in somebody else's spot. And the spot okay. is claimed just by possession from that chair. One of my producers tells me that when he lived in Boston, the tires on his car were slashed, the windows broken over a parking dispute, and an off-duty cop wrote him a fake parking ticket. That is absolutely right. So in Boston, the real rule of ownership is based on possession 
not on the law. It's not legal for somebody to slash your tires, but the police won't defend you because there's a system there which is based on the same idea, the same story of possession that we started the show with, a kid in the playground saying it's mine because I'm holding on to it. And that chair holds the space. Now it turns out here in New York, uh, if you put a chair in this in the street after after you dig out your car after a snowstorm, you're going to lose the chair <laughs> and the parking space. Right. It doesn't work uh-huh. here. So it turns out that that the language of possession, the language of ownership has regional dialects and they're different. Um, but that that basic story, that's actually how America was settled, um, you know, 200, 300 years ago. You know, the Native Americans, their position was like we possess this land. Right. We were here first. Although they, they were hunter gatherers and they didn't say this is my plot, so that made it more complicated. Exactly. So they weren't all, and some of them were. Some of them actually had were farmers, and many of them had very elaborate marking systems for their territories. Uh, but when courts had to decide between claims over ownership between settlers and Native Americans, uh, what the courts used were the, again these very same simple stories, and they said that what counts as possession, what counts as being first is chopping down trees, is raw agriculture, oh, is boy. building fences. So they, the, what they could see as first or see as possession was to what to what extent were you turning New England uh, into looking like old England? So they, they again, the stories are very much up for grabs. The courts in early America weren't using different stories. They were using first and possession and what kind of labor uh, counted, uh, basically to say, um, Settlers, you're the owners. Native Americans, you, you aren't. Um, so again, the v- same stories, uh, but um, this is actually one of the hardest things uh, as a professor uh, to, pr- to really get across to my students is that words like first, people think that words like first are an empirical fact. Either I was first or you were first. Yeah. Uh, but first is actually uh, not a fact. It's a, it's a story. Uh, it's one of these simple stories. And first is always up for grabs and can be defined to achieve some other social goal. And the goal for early American courts uh, was to have settlers uh, settle New England. We often hear that possession is nine-tenths of the law, but you argue that possession is really one-tenth. One-tenth? Isn't that amazing? So it, you know, the, the notion of possession is nine-tenths of the law is one of the oldest phrases in the law. It goes back to the something called the Code of Hammurabi from 4,000 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, but today, um, and, and actually, and, and, and uh, from then and still today, if, if you actually possess somebody else's land, if you're actually on their land, using it, farming it, living on it, if enough time passes and you're doing this openly, their land becomes your land. Just the mere possession of land turns it into your your land. This is called adverse possession. It always blows the minds of my students. The reason I say that possession is becoming one-tenth of the law is that online, uh, you actually own something that's different and much less than you think that you own. That's the story of the buy now button, where what Amazon and Apple have figured out is that they can activate, they can mobilize your um, your possession instinct. You still think that when you download a book, it's yours, but Apple and Amazon reserve the right to delete the book right off of your device. And there are instances where they have done exactly that. I mean, so e-books for example, are not mine, even though I've They're not them. yours. They're not yours. You have a very limited license when you download something online. Um, it may feel like it's yours. You see a little shopping cart online. 
you click the buy now button, mm-hmm. but what you get, you can't, but what you get is, is different and less than if you actually own a hard copy of the book or a CD of the movie. They can't come into your house and take the book away, but they can come onto your device and delete it without compensating you. So if you really want it, you better print it. Although that's a whole other issue. Uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Professor Michael Heller, I would like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air during this terrible pandemic. Again, that number 516-620-3602, 516-620-3602, where you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives, co-written by my guest, Professor Michael Heller of Columbia Law School. But no matter what level you are able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And and why not become a part of this amazing community of Leonard Lopate at Large listeners that uh, is our only source of funding. We can't keep independent radio alive on the New York radio dial without the help of listeners like you. And if you're listening to this at home right now thinking, well, I have supported WBAI in the past and your renewal has elapsed, please consider this your renewal notice. Well, all joking aside, we really need your support now more than ever. So so please go to your phone or computer and make that tax-deductible donation. You'll be supporting this show that you like, we hope, and you might even feel good in the process. But please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us to everyone who has contributed so far, thanks. And now we return to my guest, Michael Heller, co-author with James Saltzman of Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. It is published by Doubleday. Getting back to the whole business of of parking, um, aren't the streets owned by everybody? They sure are. And and just like the airwaves are owned by everybody, right? So what we need is to figure out some mechanism to actually sustain uh, parking in a, in a sort of coherent way. It's, it's the same. It's actually very similar to what you were just um, talking about with um, having your listeners uh, actually make pledges. 
It's that whenever you have some collective good, you worry some good that we all share. You worry that it's going to get wasted. It's going to get underused or overused or misused because people don't feel a personal obligation uh, to be part of the solution. And that's, that's true for pledge drives. And it's also true for parking. So how do we solve the problem of parking in New York City? Well, the way it works mostly right now is first come, first served. Uh, and that's not necessarily a great solution for parking. What it means is you have a lot more cars in New York City. A lot of you know, a tremendous amount of the traffic in New York is people actually circling around looking for parking. Um, yeah. If you actually had a, a system where people uh, paid for on-street parking, I know this is going to make your your listeners mad, um, but I think a system where you there actually are meters, for- aren't there meters? Uh, and some, and, and there are meters on the avenues, but there aren't meters on the side streets. There's, oh, you know, there's okay. tons of free parking in the city. Uh, and what it means is that we have way too many cars in the city. If people actually paid the, the real value of the spaces that they were using, uh, people would, um, would have many fewer cars. Actually, one of the really surprising, I think, positive developments, a few positive developments from the pandemic is you've begun to see restaurants now uh, sort of w- moving out. Um, off the sidewalk into those parking spaces. It's what's kept the restaurant industry alive is to have that outdoor space. So the outdoor space, which belongs to us all, those parking spaces, the city has actually been very creative over the last year and said, what's the best use of this public space? And that public space turns out to have a really high value uh, as restaurant space. Uh, to keep the restaurant industry alive in an incredibly hard time. That's much more valuable than having it be for free or very low cost parking for the too many cars that we have. That's an example of how the city is actually quite being quite creative in rethinking what its ownership of a common good, uh, in some case, the park, and in some case, in this case is uh, the uh, parking spaces. Uh, are competing ownership claims part of the problem behind environmental protection and, and regulation? Absolutely. So one of my favorite discoveries uh, in writing this book, I didn't realize this, you, you probably did. New York City, New Yorkers like to boast about like being the best in the world, best theater, best finance, best whatever. But the place where they really are, number one, it turns out is New York City drinking water. It is the your, your co-author wrote a book about drinking. He wrote a drinking. Yeah, he wrote a, a book about, about just this. New York City has the world's best drinking water and it all it wins taste tests against the most expensive bottled waters from all over the world. Like, how is that possible? It turns out that New York City drinking water comes in huge pipes up from the Catskills, about 125 miles away. And when you drink a cup of water from, from your tap in New York City, it is unfiltered. Like you're drinking the water straight from the Catskills. They, they, they take out the, the twigs and branches. They put a little chlorine in. But, but New York City water is the largest untreated water system in the country. And it has some of the best water. How on earth is that possible? And the answer has to do with really savvy ownership design, the same kinds of ownership design that can actually um, address climate change. So here's how it worked. About 30 years ago, uh, New York City water was getting worse and worse and worse as upstate farmers were developing their lands, filling their wetlands, chopping trees, building subdivisions. New York City was about to spend several billion dollars, three or four billion dollars on massive uh, water treatment plants. There was a city employee, this guy is a real unsung hero of New York City, a guy named Al Appleton. And what he realized is that it would be cheaper and more effective to re-engineer ownership than to re-engineer concrete treatment plants. So what he did is he figured out a way to um, pay upstate farmers for the water filtering services that their wetlands and trees provided. 
the problem for the farmers was that their wetlands and trees, their farms, basically provided clean water for the city, but they had no way to get paid for it. So they just filled in the wetlands or chopped down the trees. And what Al Appleton said is, we're going to treat uh, those wetlands and trees as if, as if, we call this as if ownership, as if you, the farmer, owns the water filtering services that those trees are providing to the city. So he created a mechanism by which New York City pays upstate farmers to keep wetlands intact and trees intact. And this was revolutionary. It means that still to- in, in Putnam and Dutchess County appreciate that. Oh my God. Yeah. These payments are life. Yeah, these payments are lifelines for the farmers. They're very popular politically and practically for upstate farmers. But, and, and what it's meant is that, is that what New York City uses trees instead of concrete. It has green infrastructure instead of gray infrastructure that keeps the water so clean. Haven't some countries privatized the supply of water? What has um, that accomplished? Well, Does it's sort privatization of transfer some of the power of ownership to for-profit corporations? Yeah, this, the privatization movement um, uh, has some can, can have some real benefit, but it also can have uh, some real costs when the uh, when there's a, a gap between the sort of profit motive of the privatizing of the company that runs something as essential as water uh, and the public need for for you know safe and clean drinking water. Um, so privatization of water supply systems has had a very has had a very mixed. Uh, record, but you can do by what Al Appleton did. He didn't privatize the system. He simply created a an as if version of ownership. He created a, a mechanism by which the city could pay farmers directly, and it was that mechanism that has was so successful. The, the ownership story he was using there was the same attachment story that you have as the button on the airplane seat that the wedge of space is attached to your seat, or um, it's the exact same story. He's basically telling upstate farmers, we're gonna treat uh, that those wetlands, the services those wetlands provide as if they are attached to your land and we're gonna pay you for that. It's that mechanism actually, which is what the most successful uh, programs globally have used to uh, try to slow climate change. Now, my listeners have, been getting involved. They've been emailing me things. One emailed me, according to the website drugs.com, one brand name EpiPen or uh, EpiPen Junior package, which contains two auto injectors, will cost roughly $650 to $700. So I I lowered the price if you're you're paying cash, although pharmacy coupons or manufacturer's discounts may lower the price. And then uh, another listener uh, wrote, she said, this is from MTA rules on ridership. Uh, and I remember a time this rule was being enforced and, and tickets were being given out. Seat obstruction is a $50 fine. Riders may not lie down or place feet on the seat of the train, bus, or platform bench, or occupy more than one seat. Riders may not place bags or personal items on seats in circumstances when doing so will interfere with transit operations or otherwise impede the comfort of other passengers. So um, my, my listeners are, all have thoughts about the things that we have been discussing. Part of what's so incredible about the world of ownership, about who gets what and why, 
is that this affects all of us, each of us yeah. every day, all day long. So when you see a guy on the subway, man spreading, I don't know if you know that term mm. man spreading. I, I do. Recently. Isn't that great? It's like what, he's do- what he does is he sits there with his knees wide apart and basically takes up three seats instead of one. That's actually a little pictograph on the subways. You sometimes see with a, little, you know, a red circle with an arrow through it uh, saying, don't do that. Um, but what that is, is another example of possession being, in that case, nine-tenths of the law. Like, who's going to mess with that guy? Um, so it turns out that we have this informal language of possession, the parking chair in Boston, um, or the kids in the playground. But this is also true on the subway and on the beach. You actually have beach spreading now. Mm. If you go to a lot of New Jersey beaches, families there don't just have their uh, their little blanket. They have a tent and a grill, and they actually spread out over a big part of the beach and claim it as their own. They sort of encircle it with all their beach gear. Uh, so beach spreading, man spreading, possession turns out to be a really important way to claim the stuff that you want. My guess is Michael Heller, co-author with James Saltzman of Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. It's published by Doubleday. Um, we, uh, I, I was wondering uh, if the flip side of claiming ownership is rejecting the claim, uh, which does it require a competing story of ownership or, or are some things not owned? For example, in 2016, Armed far-right extremists occupied the headquarters of the Malheur uh, Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, disputing control of public land, especially private grazing of cattle on on federal land. How important are public-private distinctions in our ideas about ownership? They couldn't be more fundamental. So, um, So the notion, this land is your land, this land is my land. Uh, what that means is this land ultimately is our land. And when something is our land, that's a very important category of ownership, ownership by the state, by the government. And state ownership, what that means is that, that those resources are managed uh, in, in this country through a democratic process uh, by which they're intended to be used for the benefit of the people as a whole. So when something is a state or government or public resource, um, we each have an individual stake in it, but that individual stake isn't something that we can go and claim our table or chair out of the building. We can't go and break in or break down or burn down. We don't have rights in that individual sense. The way we exercise rights over state property is, is, is through the democratic process by voting in and voting out uh, people who um, uh, then make the laws and, and uh, decide how the particular property is going to be used. It's a really fundamental misunderstanding of what ownership means in America when you say, for example, that the capital is our house. It doesn't mean that you get to individually go in and invade it or take it over. What it means, or a park, uh, what it means is that we have a collective, a democratic process for solving disputes over public resources. Although the insurrectionists uh, took the our house literally, yeah, that's a, so that, that's one part of the power of how we think about ownership, which is that we have these phrases in our minds about possession is nine tenths of the law or our bodies ourselves or our house that people take very literally and they're very powerful. They really do motivate a lot of behavior. Uh, sometimes that's for good uh, and sometimes it's for you know not quite as good. But you you just uh, write that legal ownership often doesn't matter. Yeah, so ownership is overrated. Uh, uh, not ownership, law is overrated in so much of our lives. So for, let me just give you an example of that. When I took my kids to Disney World uh, recently, um, I stood in this endless line 
Um, I thought that was how you got access to the rides. You, you waited in line and, and eventually you got to the front. And it turns out that Disney is one of the world's masters of engineering ownership. And they do it um, outside the law. They don't have to, it's not, it's not about law. It's about how are they going to give access to their scarce and popular rides. And what they figured out is that most of us will stand in line, uh, but some of us can get something called a fast pass, which lets us get around the line and come back later in the day. And Disney likes that. They like us using fast passes. Uh, because what it does is it gets us shopping and spending money uh, in uh, in all the stores buying Mickey merchandise. And they, they, what Disney then did is they took a really genius step in ownership. They figured out that some people are sufficiently wealthy that they really don't want to wait in line at all. And for them, what Disney did is created another version of First where you pay $5,000 and you wow. have a guide who takes you in through, through the exit or through a side door. Uh, so there's no waiting whatsoever. So what did, Disney did is it took a very simple concept of being first in time and engineered three versions of it, a no waiting whatsoever version for the super wealthy. Uh, you come back later and spend money in the meanwhile version for the those who plan ahead and old fashioned first in time for those of us who just don't know better. We just sit, sit around waiting in line. So That's all that Yorkers. happens. Oh, yeah, that's us. All of us have all that happens outside of the law. It's all a version of ownership design by really savvy businesses taking our natural instincts about ownership and using them to steer us to do what they want. India, the WHO, Médecins Sans Frontières and others have called for the World Trade Organization to suspend intellectual property rights temporarily so that COVID-19 vaccines can be distributed more quickly to poorer nations. Would that be effective? And, and what about the fact that the U.S., Japan and the countries of Europe have opposed the waiver? Well, that's what is their really argument? This is a this is a very deep and very complicated issue. It was actually the same debate um, I remember uh, back in the eighties um, and nineties around the early AIDS drugs about whether they would they would suspend mm -hmm. patent rights uh, for those as well. So whenever there's a new class of life saving drugs uh, for some really terrible disease, uh, we have the same debate again. Um, and the amount of protection we have for life saving drugs is too much, uh, but zero probably is also not the right amount. So this is a it's a really hard policy question. And here's the challenge. The challenge is you want to uh, motivate uh, researchers to discover and produce these drugs as quickly as possible. Uh, and part of what motivates them is the possibility of getting rich. Uh, so you need some property rights, some patent protection, some ability to get rich, uh, but you don't want too much because every dollar that those vaccines cost means lives that are not saved. So um, the maximal position, the most position, most protection position of the United States, I think is, uh, is wrong, is immoral. Uh, but I also think that the zero protection position of countries like India is really unsustainable uh, because it sends the wrong message to drug companies, which is if you innovate, we'll simply take uh, what you have created. A better solution uh, for really important drugs uh, like these vaccines is to use prizes instead of patents to say, we will um, give you a billion dollar prize if you produce this drug within a certain period of time. And that's actually a version of what we largely had in this country uh, for the COVID vaccine was guaranteed uh, multi-billion dollar contracts for the big drug makers if they produce the vaccine in a very accelerated schedule. So there's a way to split the difference, which is to basically move to a prize system instead of a patent system. We have practically no time left, but I do have to ask you, do we own ourselves? Uh, do, uh, do we own our genetic data? This is such a 
such a cool question. So I don't know if you've done this, but many of my friends have. You swab your cheek and you send in your information to 23andMe or Ancestry.com and you find out you're 43% Welsh and 17% this and, and whatever it is. Um, and that is incredibly cool information. But if, if you ever stop for a second and wonder, like, why is, the, why is it so cheap to get your DNA um, read out for you? And the answer is uh, that you're not really the consumer for all of those gene testing companies. You're actually the product. Uh, what they are doing is basically making those tests very cheap because what, they're, what the gene companies are doing is assembling massive databases of your genetic data, which they then sell to pharmaceutical companies for research and to insurance companies for, uh, for certain kinds of rate setting. Uh, so basically you're the product which they're trying to sell to their real consumer, their real customer, which are these very large corporations. And whenever there's any new resource like genetic data, or the wedge of space when it gets more crowded on the airplane, or any, or, the, or America when the settlers first came. Whenever there's any resource that's scarce and valuable, which is everything, uh, the ownership of that is very much up for grabs. And that's certainly the case with genetic data. So what the gene companies are doing is they are, it's basically a wild west where they are moving first, claiming first possession, claiming ownership based on their labor, the labor and assembling these big databases. But what's so important for your listeners is to realize that we have the opportunity still on genetic data uh, to fight back and say, no, you know, our bodies ourselves, our ownership story is that this comes from us and is still attached to us. Uh, so we actually uh, are at the frontier of the question of who should own our genetic data, who should own our online data. These are all questions that are that your listeners uh, are very much at the forefront of when they uh, when they lobby their representatives. We've run out of time, uh, but Professor Heller, uh, I, uh, you and your uh, you co-author are both law professors. Much of what you describe about ownership is also involves psychology, economics, and sociology. So I found it very fascinating. And I thank you so much for being on our show to talk about uh, your book with uh, James Saltzman of UCLA called Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives, published by Doubleday. Thank you so, so much. Oh, it's really a pleasure to be, be here with you. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of the show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of their work in making the show happen over every week. If you're just discovering us and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And there are links all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I, I need to ask for your financial support so we can continue to bring you the, the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that you've come to expect on this show. So please go right now to give to WBAI.org online or call 516-620-3602 to help keep Leonard Lopate at large on at WBAI.org. BAI on the air. And one great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of London Lopez at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book that we were discussing, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives, co-authored by my guest, Professor Michael Heller, Columbia Law 
law school. It's our way of saying thanks, but only if you step up and make that call right now. One last time, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to online to give to wbai.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of London Lopate at large. And thanks. We hope you'll join us again on Monday when Glenn Frankel will discuss his new book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic that tells the story behind the making of that iconic film. Have a great weekend.